leave up that screen background there. I was watching that and I thought, that looks like the pictures that are coming from the James Webb, James Webb Space Telescope. If you've been watching these pictures from this amazing telescope, they are finding some distant galaxies with billions of stars in them. It's amazing, and, and that's what it reminded me of. Of course, that's not it, but I would encourage you to look up those pictures. Just beautiful what God has created out there. Absolutely amazing. So what is God like? I mean, I've kind of pointed to the heavens, but what is God like? One Sunday school teacher asked the children in her class, these are elementary kids, you know, what do we know about God? And one of the children, a little girl raised her hand, she said, well, we know his name is Howard. She kind of smiled. She said, why do you think his name is Howard? She said, well, every Sunday in church, we say that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, Howard is thy name. I'm not sure God goes by Howard, probably not, but there is a wealth of information about God in Scripture. Problem is, a lot of people don't actually know what the Bible says about God. In fact, we've learned that many opinions, many understandings, and could be your own, are more likely to be formed from the movies, popular opinion or literature, social media. That's actually where most people get their view of God from. We all have questions about God. We want to know, what is God like? Is God that angry, ready-to-pounce deity that some proclaim? You know, the shouting preachers that are ripping into you every time. Or, is God that vague spiritual feeling that permeates creation like cosmic dust? It's kind of out there feeling. I mean, there's, there's a wide variety of opinions about God. And these are important questions. I think they're important enough to motivate you to be in church this morning. You didn't come because you had to. I hope not. But maybe you're wanting to know a little more about God, about that relationship. And maybe you're here because you want to know what the United Methodist Church believes about God. That's also very important. So we're beginning a new series today that's going to take us through August and early September. We call it hashtag B-U-M-C. Now, I mentioned it. That's what it looks like. You can go online and look up lots of stories and testimonies, things that are happening. Because people wanted to celebrate the good work that God is doing through these United Methodist individuals and congregations and agencies, ministries, missions that are part of our tradition. It's a place where people like you are invited to share their experiences, and you can do that as well. It's also a place to share what we believe. And there are, as I said, many wonderful transformative ministries, but we also need to know what is our foundation. Because there are some, I would call them a minority, who no longer want to be part of the United Methodist Church. Now, among that minority, there are some who are disaffiliating, and they have no hesitation in sharing erroneous intentionally false information. I read some of this stuff and I thought, that's not even close. Why would you say that? But that's what people do sometimes. And again, it's not everybody that's disaffiliating, just some. For instance, some have claimed that we no longer believe in God. And would you be coming if that was the case? Isn't that the beginning point? Some claim that we don't believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in salvation by faith. We don't believe in the Trinity or the centrality of Scripture. 
Well, you get the point. Some people are saying things like that, but it is simply not true. Because we United Methodists, we want to be very clear. There are some people, maybe some outliers who believe this or that, but who we are as a family, as a community, as part of the the body of Christ, part of the church, is very clear. We have these unchangeable doctrinal standards. We have clear, immutable articles of, of religion, a confession of faith. Now, you can find these online. They're easy to find. What do we believe? And they're there. In fact, if you go to the articles of faith, the first article is about God. Let me read to you what it says. It's talking about the Holy Trinity. Of course, when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we're talking about God. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's an ancient formulation that goes back hundreds of years, but has been immutable, never changed. And it's just one of the statements in the Articles of Religion about God. We believe in God. We're not yielding in that. So in spite of what some may say, that's not going to change in the United Methodist Church. But having said that then, what do we believe in God? Or let me say it this way, if we believe in God, what does that mean? That's important. What does it mean to say, I believe in God? Is it just because my parents told me I'm supposed to? Or the preacher convinced me that if I would say yes, I could get up and get out of there quicker? I mean, there's different reasons, but I think it should have meaning. It should have value in your life. It should inform and shape who you are. This is profound important. And one of the places we learn to understand what that means is in Scripture. Now, one of my favorite passages is from the book of Acts. Paul, the apostle, has been traveling throughout the Roman world. You know what he did. He planted churches. He told people about the love of Christ. Everywhere he went, he did that. And it was often difficult. People persecuted him for saying things like that, telling people about God's love. But he wanted to share Jesus Christ with the world. But then, in this section of the book of Acts, which comes from chapter 17, Paul arrives in Athens, Greece. As he's traveling through the town, he notices that these Athenians have shrines everywhere. And if you know anything about the Greek pantheon of gods, like the Roman pantheon of gods, they had lots and lots of gods, major gods, minor gods. In fact, Marvel comic books has made a gazillion dollars off of that understanding of the gods. Thor's my favorite, I'll just be honest. But there are so many gods, and Paul can see shrines everywhere. And as he's traveling through, he comes across one shrine that has an inscription on it to an unknown god. So here's part of what I love about Paul, his, his genius. We read in the book of Acts, So Paul, standing before the council, this is the Athenian council, the leaders there in Athens, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. It's a compliment. I was walking along and I saw your many shrines. Do you know that one of your altars has this inscription on it? To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. 
You see, Paul didn't start off by attacking them, saying, pagans, what are you doing believing in all these gods? He didn't do that. He's very respectful. I see something in you that's remarkable. You have faith. But I recognize, too, there's an area where you're kind of unsure. Let me tell you about it. He goes on to say, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Human hands can't serve his need, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. See, Paul is being brilliant and succinct right here. He tells those Athenians, God made the world and everything in it. God made you. He's not confined to one place. God is everywhere, including in you is what he's pointing at. God doesn't have needs that have to be tended to. He's not narcissistic, needy. No, instead, God is giving life. He satisfies our needs. He's giving to us. And through God, we're all related, every one of us. God is close to us and wants us to move toward him to find life and meaning in that relationship. He says, by the way, You're all children of God. You're God's children. It comes down to this. Paul will explicate this beautifully in his writings. It's all through the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's part of Jesus' saying. It's part of the affirmation from the beginning. God loves us. And God wants us to return that love. To fulfill that great relationship. We read in Matthew chapter 22 how important this is. There's an expert in the law, and the law was everything to the Jewish leaders. He comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, now this is set up. They're trying to trap him. They're going to try to make him stumble. But he says, Teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus, without hesitating, says, Well, that is, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment. Now, we know he went on to say that the second is like that, to love your neighbors yourself, that everything in the law and the prophets depends on this. But you've got to keep reading. Because if you continue reading, then you understand that a discussion with these experts begins to unfold. And Jesus then turns the table and starts asking them questions. In verse 46 of chapter 22 of Matthew, we see the result of this answer, question and answer session that Jesus has. For Matthew tells us, nobody can answer him then. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The authorities are there to discredit Jesus, but they make a fundamental mistake because for them it is the law, the ritual that's most important. When Jesus says, it's not appearances, it's the relationship. They begin with what you do. Jesus tells us, reminds us to begin with who you love. 
Here we learn something very important about God. That God wants to be in relationship with us. So Jesus in a verse, talking about loving God, upends everybody's self-imposed importance. Efforts at manipulation and control of people, he points to the source. The source, he says, and again, this is when we ask that question, if we say we believe in God, what does that mean? Jesus says, God is the source. And by the way, God has done something remarkable. He has loved you first. God made the first move. So here is what God is like. God is love. Which is why we, United Methodists, put that first. Unapologetically. We proclaim that God first loved us and that we are invited to love God. Finding that as we do, we understand how to love each other, to love others, and even how to love ourselves. Think about this order. If I can get it through my head and my heart, how much God loves me, it's going to change the way I feel about you and about myself. That's intentional. It's not dependent on what I achieve, who I know, how I dress, where I live, where I've been to school. None of that. This image that we are to have of one another, of ourselves, is built on knowing how God sees us. That insight profoundly changed John Wesley's life. Now, Wesley, for those of you who may not know, is the founder, the spiritual leader of a movement which became the Methodist Church. Wesley, with strong conviction, proclaimed that a Methodist first loves God. That's the beginning point. I told you we believe in God. We Methodists, we believe in God. But it's been that way from the beginning of this movement. It's the way it's been from the moment Jesus showed up. It's the way it was in the Garden of Eden moving forward. It's always been there. One of my favorite people, Dr. Steve Harper, points out, by naming the first mark of a disciple, and he's talking about in his book, The Five Marks of a Disciple, what is it that makes us distinctive? He says, the first mark is to be a person who loves God. It's number one. Wesley, he said, is inviting us to step into this stream of Scripture and tradition to join the first followers and all the subsequent saints who have made the love of God their heart's desire. So what Wesley has just done is he's joined the gospel writers who invite us to make the first mark, the first action, the first word from our hearts to be our love for God because everything flows from that. I have put together a lot of toys for my kids over the years. Maybe it was a bicycle or something they were going to play with. A lot of it before birthday or before Christmas. But, you know, if I leave out a critical part, it just doesn't work. It's sort of like leaving the tire off that bicycle. Here's your bike. Good luck. I didn't think it needed a tire. So, have fun. It's just not going to work. You see, what Dr. Harper is saying, what Wesley was saying, what the gospel writer is saying, what Scripture tells us is you've got to have all the parts, but the first part, the most important part, is God. So powerful is that reality 
that has profoundly changed lives through the centuries. It changes the world. God loves you so much that you can have hope. United Methodists believe in God. And that being a Christian begins with loving God even as we discover that God first loved us. We say this because this is primary. We believe in God. Unapologetically, full bore, we believe in the Creator. But boy, what we believe about that Creator is even more amazing. It's not just what we believe, it's what we discover. Wesley, John Wesley, in response to this powerful truth, just went into it all the way in. And he wrote, God is the joy of our heart, the desire of our soul. It's constantly crying out, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire but you, Wesley said. He fell in love with God. My God and my all, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Wesley was all in with God. You know, that caught those early Methodists, as it still should be catching us today, to be all in and loving God. The Methodist movement of the 18th century, the 1700s, especially in England, was radical in its love for the poor, and that's when the poor dominated society. It was awful growing up in that place at that time. It was radical in its love for the hurting and the oppressed. It was radical in its desire to see lives change for good, for hope to be restored. It was radical in that for the first time in human history, a social consciousness which came out of the fruit of Christian discipleship began to affect all society. There are people who've written a lot about this, but they will tell you there was no social conscience, moral imperative to do anything about things like Child labor, slavery, some of the awful things that were happening, and like, just the way it is. But when you fall in love with God, and you draw close to God, and you begin to understand God, it changes everything. And that's what happened with Wesley and those early Methodists. They thought, whoa, if God cares about the Hebrews who were in Egypt as slaves, he certainly cares about these folks that are plying the oceans as slaves to work our cotton fields. And everything changed because people wanted to know who God was and they drew close to God and understood God's love. You want to change the world? Believe in God and then find out what that means. There is nothing better. That movement called Methodist began to change the world so dramatically in such a good way and it is with a profoundly simple, powerful idea. Love God with all your being. That's the first and most important mark of a Methodist as a follower of Christ. So, in case you haven't heard me say it about 20 times already, I'll say it one more time. To be a United Methodist is to believe in God. And it is to be in love with God, knowing that God has already declared his love for you. Unconditional, profound love. Which is how Paul came to that final phrase, you are God's children. God has this incredible, life-giving love for you. So if anybody asks you, and you might be asked, or you might read something that leads you to believe that we're thinking differently, but don't go down that rabbit hole. But if anybody does ask you, what do United Methodists believe? Start with this. 
We believe in God. Absolutely believe in God. And what do we believe about God? We believe that God is love, that God first loved us, that God loves the world so much that God gave His only Son for our salvation, for our eternity. That's what we believe. We believe in God. And we believe in the love of God. Let's pray. What we have found, Lord, is it's plain and powerful that you love us. And you invite us to step close to you, to know you, just to bathe in your love, and then to love each other in that same remarkable way, even as we learn to love ourselves. Some here today are hurting. Maybe those relationships are strained with others, or maybe they just don't like themselves or are struggling with themselves. But help any of us who are in those places to reframe that perspective, to see ourselves through your lens, the lens of love. Help us to see how profoundly and deeply you have given yourself for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the years as a pastor, I've seen some folks that have been in some really dark places. They've been through things and done some things that, well, quite frankly, would be hard to believe. Remember a man in particular who came and told me in a confessional moment, it was I was a young pastor, that he was regretful that he had hurt so many people. He said, you know... My job was to enforce the the policies of the people I worked for. And he said, and there are some people whose lives I ended. What he essentially was telling me is he'd murdered some people. And he said, and it's not really who I am. Now, what would you tell him in a moment like that? So I pointed to this. I said, there's not anything you've done that God does not know about. But he loves you. And he's calling you away from that life to know his love, to change who you are, and to love others. He and I prayed at the altar that day. I've never seen him again. But I saw this transformation in his heart. I don't know how hard it would have been to go back and tell the people he worked for that he's not going to enforce their policies anymore, kill people. But a heart was changed that day, and the change came when he saw how much God loved him. Go and know God's love. Give your heart fully to him, believe in him, and let him work that great change in you, and then be a witness to that love, even as you learn to love yourself. Go in peace and go in love. Amen.